Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Welcome to Connect Church here in Meadowridge. It's wonderful to be with you this morning. If you haven't met me before, my name is Brad. I'm one of the pastors here at Connect. I'm usually down in Musenberg, and uh, it's great to be with you this morning. We're going to finish up a series that we've been in called It All Adds Up, where we've been speaking about finances and the kingdom of God and how we to use those inside the kingdom. And this morning, I'm going to speak about something that I, that I hope is relevant for all of us. It's uh, the secret to financial security, not Jeff Grenville. There we go. Because I think all of, us, all of us wrestle with this idea of becoming financially secure. It's a challenge that exists in the world that we live in today. I mean, how often are we asking this question, how do I provide well for my families in the financial climate that we're in? Have I got enough saved for my retirement, for my kids' schooling, for their varsity fees? Because you know how those are escalating. What about my investments? Are, are they secure? And what, what are the markets doing in South Africa at the moment? All kinds of weird stuff is going on. How am I going to pay for these unexpected expenses? You know what that's like? When you kind of get to the end of the month and you've budgeted really well and everything's kind of gone wrong, all of a sudden you try and turn your car on and it doesn't work. And you go to the mechanic, he's like, look, I'm really sorry, it's going to cost you like ten to 15,000 rand. And you're like... <laughs> well, we all wrestle with living in financial security. You know, more than that, we live in a world where our desires are nurtured and cultivated and shaped by an advertising industry that is so pervasive that we constantly have this desire that is cultivated in us to want more than we already have. I thought about showing you a trailer from a movie that came out about 10 years ago that really exploited this idea. I don't know if any of you have seen the movie called The Joneses. And in this movie, there's a, a pretend family that moves into a neighborhood and they have the perfect life. And they have all the great stuff, and their job is to look like a family that has the best of everything. Because when people see what they have, then they want what they have. Right? And how often do we operate a little bit like that? When you see your friend's got the new phone, and you're like, yo, that looks really great. And, you know, it'd be really cool if I could get that on. You know what? Your motorbike looks really amazing. I'd like my 700cc is just not quite as cool as your 1,200cc. You might need to upgrade. Right? Marketing is all around us. And it looks to, to, to tell us, and our, the, you know, the advertising industry is really gracious. For those of you involved in advertising, my apologies. But you guys are really good at, at helping us to know what we actually need and then supplying it for us. And if we don't need it yet, you, you create a need by, by telling us, you know, actually your life is deficient without this thing. You, you need, we all need to eat, Right? You can't just go to checkers and buy normal food. No, you must have the best food. You must have the organic food, the healthy food, the one that's been you know, checked 1,700 times. You want to play sports? It's actually not good enough to have like mediocre sporting equipment. You need the new, the latest thing. This stick is so much better than that stick. This cricket bat, so much better than that one. Here's our favorite one, cell phones. You know, it's not just good enough to have a, a normal phone that does what you need it to do. You need it to be bigger, better. Every new year, we're going to bring out a new phone with all the same features of the old one, plus one more, and it will cost you only 20,000 rands. What about this? When we have kids, how often do we desire for our kids to, to have the best schooling experience? And we make sacrifices for that. Or the, the toys that they get to play with, it's not good enough for them to go out and play make-believe in the garden. We actually we need to get the latest PS4 for them so that they can not feel awkward when their friends come around, you know, so that they can have the best stuff. 
the advertising industry loves to go a little bit deeper. It loves to tell us that all of us are a little bit inadequate in who we are. And so, you know what, actually to be better about yourself, you need to just try this makeup. It'll be really great. YouTube is full of tutorials, by the way, on how to use makeup. I don't really need to watch those. Because <laughs> I don't really want to use makeup. But then we get told, oh, the clothes that you're wearing, those, those clothes aren't good enough. You actually, this is the latest fashion. This is what it needs to be cool today. You know, when you want to be in shape, you need to join this gym because our gym is better than that gym and you will be a better person if you get fitter. And you know what? In addition to that, you also need to go on this new amazing health diet that's going to make you into a better person. No matter where you sit on the spectrum of wealth, there's always something better that you can have, a better person than you can be, so we're told. There's a pressure to get there. Jesus said to his disciples, he said this, he says, where your treasure is, there your heart is as well. Friends, this is, this is a statement of fact. It's not a, it's not a description of what might happen to you in your life. It's a description of what is always true. Jesus is saying you can actually evaluate your heart by looking at where you've stored treasure. Have you stored it here on earth? Or have you stored it in heaven? I kind of want us to think about that a little bit. So I want to share a quote with you from a guy called Richard Foster. He wrote this in 1980. That's 39 years ago. Right? This is what he said about his culture 39 years ago. He said, our need for security has led us into an insane attachment to things. We really need to understand that the lust for affluence in contemporary society is psychotic. It is psychotic because it has lost touch with reality. We crave things that we neither need nor enjoy, but we buy things that we do not want to impress people we do not like. We're made to feel ashamed to wear clothes and to drive cars to the point where they are worn out. And the mass media have convinced us that to be out of step with fashion is to be out of step with reality. It's time, he says, that we awaken to the fact that conformity to a sick society is to be sick. That hit me hard. Until we see how unbalanced our culture has become at this point, we will not be able to deal with the mammon spirit within ourselves. Those are some strong words. And I think for me, he, this, is, this is 39 years ago. Marketing has only got better. Our desire for stuff has only increased. And he brings into stark contrast what I think is so difficult for us in an affluent neighborhood, in an affluent church, to begin to see. That there is a spirit of, of money, of the love of money that looks to reside in our hearts. There is a battle that is going on for our hearts between the love of money and the love of Jesus. All of us are facing that. This is actually one of the things that the scriptures speak so frequently about. I'll give you just a little taste. Luke chapter 12, verse 15. Jesus is speaking to a crowd of people. He's doing some teaching. And a man is there and he says to Jesus, Jesus, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus said to him, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. For a man's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Thousands of years ago, King Solomon, a man who had everything we could ever want, in Ecclesiastes 5.10, records this wisdom out of his life experience. He says, whoever loves money will never have enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. 
Hebrews, the writer to the Hebrews in chapter 13, verse 5, he, he writes this, he says, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. How about these words that Jesus speaks to the church at Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3? He begins by quoting them and he says, You have said, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and I don't need a single thing. You don't even realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Matthew 13 Jesus is telling the parable of the sower. You remember the story? There's a guy going around casting seeds. It's the word of the kingdom. And afterwards, his disciples don't know what he said. So he says, won't you explain the parable to us? Jesus says this in verse 22. He says, the seed that falls among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, the word of God. But the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and make it unfruitful. Wealth is deceitful. Money is deceitful. It steals the power out of the Word of God and draws us after itself. Paul writes these words of wisdom to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 9. He says to Timothy, he says, Timothy, people who want to get rich fall into temptation and into a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And some people who are eager for money have wandered away from their faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Scripture has a lot to say about how we manage our finances, and, and some of it is quite hard to hear. Perhaps nothing is, is clearer than what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 6, he says to his disciples and to those who are listening, he says, guys, I need you to know that no one can be a slave to two masters. Because either you will hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. Guess what? The two masters are God and money. That's the dichotomy that he sets up for us. He says, in each and every one of us, there is a battle that is going on right now for the devotion of your hearts. The spirit of greed and the love of money desires to have you just as much as Jesus does. And a question that I, uh, we, I think we really need to ask for us, ourselves today is, am I serving the right master in all areas of my life, including my finances? Are those things submitted to Jesus? I believe that the battle that we experience in the spirit for the devotion of our hearts is the real reason we, we wrestle with financial anxiety. I really believe that. I think there are a collection of practical things, how much we earn, how much we spend, how much we save, where we spend, where we save. Those things are important and need to be managed. But at the heart of all of those things is this question, who does our money serve? Who does our money serve? See, it's the battle for the devotion of your heart that leads to financial insecurity. And so that's why when I titled my message this morning, The Secret to Financial Security, I really believe that that secret lies in this thing that Paul talks about called being content. Learning to be content. And so that's, that's the heart of what we're going to speak about this morning. But I don't feel like I could speak about that unless we understand how big the problem is. Contentment is the solution to a problem. It's a way of life that God has given us to live in because there is a problem that exists around us. And if we don't see the problem, then we won't want the solution. 
So let's dig into Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 to 13 together. Paul has this to say. He says, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. And, and I need you to know I'm not saying this because I'm in need, because I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. In fact, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And I can do all this through Him who gives me strength. This passage in, in the letter to the Philippians comes at a bit of a climax of the letter. Paul is, has had this partnership with the Philippian church. You might remember last week John spoke about the Macedonian churches and their partnership with Paul in ministry. The Philippian church is one of those churches and, and they had journeyed together in ministry. They had, even in their poverty, been supporting Paul financially and enabling him to continue in the ministry he'd been doing and he'd been a spiritual father to them, leading them in the faith. This is this partnership that they had going. And this letter that he writes to the Philippians is, is designed primarily to say thank you to them for their support. Interestingly, at the time of writing this letter, Paul is actually in prison in Rome. And he's received a visit from a chap called Epaphroditus who has come from the Philippian church and he's brought to Paul a, a financial gift that they had prepared for him and it's been a blessing to Paul. And So that's the renewed concern that Paul speaks about in verse 10. He's saying, I, like, I know that your heart for me and your desire to help me never dwindled, but you, know, you didn't have the opportunity to do an EFT, and so you weren't able to help me out because you literally couldn't get to where I was. But I want to thank you now that you have come and you've been able to show that support to me again. And then he, digs, then he kind of digs into the heart of what he's now about to say. He begins to theologically unpack the reasons behind where he's at. And he says, I, I'm not saying this because I'm in need. I'm not saying thank you for your gift because I'm in need, which is, which is kind of strange if you consider that he's currently sitting in a jail cell. He's, at, well, he's probably under house arrest. He's unable to leave his home. He's unable to work. He's unable to make tents. He's unable to go to the market and buy food. I don't know how much more needy you could really get. And on the face of it, that would seem to be the case. But Paul says it's not in this situation because he says, I have learned the secret to be content whatever the circumstances. I've learned about this thing called contentment that no matter where I find myself, I'm going to be okay. I've learned, I know what it is, he says, to be in need. And I know what it is to have plenty. I've actually lived in both extremes. Paul is reminding the Philippians that, that he has lived where he hasn't had any food where he's gone hungry for days on end because there's been nothing to eat. He says, I know what it is to live on the street and to sleep under the sky because I've been homeless and there's been nowhere for me to sleep. But I also know what it is to have an abundance, to have more food than I needed, to have more clothes than I could wear, to have more rooms than I could sleep in by myself. And in both of those pl places, I've learned the secret that transcends all of them, that I've learned to be content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I've learned the secret of being content. And for us, this morning, I want to talk about the secret that Paul has learned that I think we can cultivate in our own lives as well so that we can live in the contentment that Paul lived in. So we're going to speak a little bit about how we discover that, how we live in that, and what exactly contentment is. So contentment is, is not a new idea, and it's also not an outdated one. 
It's an idea that's been around for a very long period of time from the Stoic philosophers in ancient Greece who were very excited about finding this inner peace in the space of contentment to the New Age movement today in Buddhism, which is also very much about finding a place of contentment and peace. So let's talk a little bit about contemporary contentment that exists in the world, and then we'll, we'll shift a little bit to godly contentment, which is what Paul is speaking about, because the two are a little bit similar, but fundamentally different. See, in contemporary contentment, it's about looking inward. It's about finding your, your identity of who you are and understanding yourself as a holistic person and, and beginning to recognize who you are and who you aren't. And then it's about increasing, they say, increase your gratitude for the stuff that happens in your life. Because right? we tend to be slightly negative as people. And so, so the call in uh, contemporary theories on contentment is to just begin to be thankful. Be thankful that you're alive. Be thankful that you had some food to eat, that you were able to speak to someone. Be thankful for the small things. Then it's about decreasing our desire. Decreasing our desires for other things. If you lower your expectations, then it's easier to meet them and you're more easily able to feel content. It's about decreasing our negativity, right? Because it's often easy for us to feel like we're the victim of something. We, it's easy for us to remember the stuff that's happened to us that's been hard and difficult. And often when someone says to you, hey, how's your week been? It's easy to say, you know what, this has been tough and this has been tough and this has been tough. It's not always the thing we say, you know, it's been a great week because this, this and that. Right? So decrease the amount of negativity that you express and think about. And then Contemporary contentment is about aesthetic minimalism. It's about decreasing the stuff that we have, right? Decreasing the number of things that we buy and the clutter that we fill our lives with, both material clutter and emotional clutter that begins to filter up around us. And if we begin to do these things, you'll probably begin to feel a bit better. I think there's, there's some wisdom in these things. They're not bad for us, but they're different to what Paul is speaking about. They're different to the godly contentment. That, that we're called to as Christians, that we can live in. For Paul, when he speaks about contentment, it's not about being inward-focused, it's about being God-focused. It's about understanding my place in light of God, right? That in God's cosmic design, it's, it's about come, coming to the, the idea simultaneously that we are both infinitesimally tiny in comparison to God, and yet we are concurrently integral to His plan in all that He is doing here on earth. He is both far beyond us and unreachable, and yet He's also intimately near. He's Emmanuel, God with us. He is beyond our comprehension, and His thoughts are beyond our thoughts, and we can't begin to understand Him fully, and yet He speaks to us and reveals Himself to us, and we are able to know Him truly. It's about knowing that He is the Almighty Creator God who existed before the heavens and the earth were formed, and yet He is also a loving Father. And as we begin to learn to rest in God and in our place with Him and His greatness and love for us, we begin to gain a perspective that enables us to walk in contentment. Secondly, Christian contentment is about living in gratitude to God for His actions towards us. So, so this is similar to contemporary contentment, but it's fundamentally different because it's directing our gratitude towards God because He's the one that gives us everything that we have. Just prior to the text that we read from verses 10 to 13, Paul says in verse 4, he says, Rejoice always, and again I tell you, rejoice. In verse 6, he says, Whenever you pray to God, pray with thanksgiving. Be grateful to God for what He has done. Remember His goodness. 
If you go through the Old Testament, you'll find God consistently telling his people when he speaks to them, he says, I am the God that brought you up out of Egypt. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the God who led you through the wilderness. I have been faithful in your history. I have been good to you in the past. Remember that. Be grateful for that and know that I'm going to continue to be like that. It's about increasing our gratitude and we, we really do. We wrestle with this challenge of, of feeling the negative and, and living and sometimes just allowing that to be the primary thing in our life. And it's not that that doesn't exist. And we can't just pretend that hardships don't happen. But it's about in those moments, we don't get stuck there, but we remember that God remains good, that He remains faithful, that He's going to continue to be there for us. And as we begin to do that, it actually begins to lift us out of a place of despondency and hopelessness. Thirdly, and I think quite significantly, in Christian and godly contentment, because it's God-focused rather than us-focused, there are two key movements that we make, what I've called a spiritual redirection that God begins to do in us by the Spirit as we allow Him. And the first is this, God begins to move us from a worldview that is me-centered to a worldview that is kingdom-centered. And I think for me this is best summed up in what Paul says in the beginning to his letter to the Philippians. In Philippians chapter 1 and verse 21, and remember when he writes this, he's sitting in jail and he's waiting for, for Caesar to place judgment on him as to whether he's going to be executed or set free. And he's sitting there and he's reflecting on his current situation and he writes, you know, guys, I want you to know that for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For me to live is to live for the purpose of the Messiah, for the one who called me out of darkness and brought me into his kingdom of light. My life is now geared for his purpose. That's why I exist. And if I was going to live in a self-centered way, I would rather die. That would actually be better because then I'd go to be with Jesus in glory and it would be fantastic. And as he wrestles this through, he writes it out for them. He says, but I've concluded that it is better for me to stay alive, not because I want it, but because it will be for your benefit, because I could be able to live in the service of the kingdom and be still used by God in your life and in the lives of others. If we want to live in contentment, there needs to be a redirection that happens in our heart from focusing on what is good for us to what is good for the kingdom. There's a second redirection that I think needs to undergo, that we need to undergo, where we go from being motivated and orientated around success, being financially um, set up, living our lives in, in a place of happiness, to a place that's orientated around obedience to Jesus. That's our core in, in God's kingdom. Remember, Jesus said you can't serve two masters. It's, it's God or money. And all of us sought in a default position where we were in the world, we were born in the world, we grew up in a sinful culture, we were raised under the, the authority of the spirit of this world. And God has taken us out of that and brought us into the kingdom of his son. And there's a reorientation that needs to happen in our lives in terms of what true success looks like in life. Francis Chan once said, and it really stuck with me, the saddest thing he sees is people in life who win the wrong race. And they get to the end and they've got everything except Jesus. Both of these redirections need to be at work in us. And they are at work in us as we pray and we invite God to move in our hearts and to transform us and to, and to conform us into his image. We need to ask God to do that. And finally, Christian contentment is grounded in the faithfulness of God. That's why Paul says in verse 13, he says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. 
which hopefully you can see because this verse is often stolen and put out of context. You know, I can somewhat do anything because I've got Jesus with me. Uh, that's not really what it means. You can't fly a plane because of Jesus. I mean, he, he might do that, but it's unlikely. Right? What Paul is saying is that I'm able to be content in any and every situation because I know that God is at work in my life. It's Christ who enables us, whether we have nothing or we have everything, to be content, no matter what may be happening. It's because God is faithful that we're able to place our trust in Him, that He is worthy of our trust. I want you to notice something here. There's something really significant. Paul said earlier he'd learned the secret of being content when he had abundance and when he had almost nothing. And I think we, particularly in the affluence culture that we live in, need to be very careful that, that we don't attach our contentment to the provision of God in a particular situation for ourselves. Let me, let me illustrate what I mean. If, if you lose your job and you can't afford something anymore, maybe you can't afford the repayments on your house, maybe you can't afford the varsity fees for your kids or the repayments on your car or your cell phone contract, your DSC, whatever it might be, your contentment is not dependent on God making back the difference in His provision. See, Paul says, guys, there are times in my life where I had literally nothing. I had no food to eat. There was no provision for food. There was no provision for shelter. There was no provision for clothes. There were times where I had nowhere to sleep. In fact, right now I'm writing this to you from prison. Right? Where was, where's the provision of God to let me escape this place? I think what we need to hear in this is that there may be times in our life where the stuff of our lives gets pruned away by God. And some of that disappears. And it doesn't get restored. Maybe it gets restored later. But if that happens, a real question we need to wrestle with is will we be content? Can we still be content if some of the stuff gets taken away? Will we remember that our life is no longer our own, that we've been bought with a price and that we now live to serve Jesus and His kingdom, not ourselves? I love these words that Paul writes to Timothy. It's like in the, in the last letter that Paul ever writes. It's just before the end of his life and he's contemplating the life that he's lived. And he writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.12. He says, Timothy, I need you to know that I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. I know, I know Jesus. I know him. I believed in him. And I'm convinced that everything that I've done, all the treasure that I've stored up in heaven, he is going to guard. And that's going to be restored to me on that day when I go to be with him. Friends, when we truly allow ourselves to become God-focused, to remember God's goodness towards us, to be directed away from ourselves and from the love of money towards Jesus and His kingdom, when we learn to fully trust in the faithfulness of God. That's when we get to walk in the contentment of knowing that our lives are entrusted to Jesus for His use and for His glory. So I want to bring my message this morning to a bit of a close, and I want to do that by, by walking you through a process some of you may be familiar with. It's called the five R's. We do it in the Living Free course. And the first R stands for recognition. We need to recognize. And if we're going to live in contentment, then, then we need to recognize that we actually we start in having a problem. And if we can't see the problem, then there's nothing we can do. 
So I want to offer you a couple of thoughts to consider. These are the thoughts that I've adapted from Richard Foster's guidelines that he writes in celebration of discipline. And if you find any of them to, to kind of sit hard with you, or they, they kind of push buttons in your heart, I want to just ask you to invite God into that space. Just allow him to ask you some questions. And, and as we're going to go through this, I, I really don't think we can do this justice. I think this thing is so deep in our culture. It's so difficult for us to begin to see. I want to invite you to, to consider these things at home and to take some time and, to, and just to invite God to, li- to work his way in you by the Spirit. Just some six questions to maybe help you um, invite God into some spaces. When you buy things, do you buy them because they're useful or because there's some status attached to them? Have you embraced anything? Do you buy buy anything that forms addictive habits in you? Do you willingly give things away when you have an opportunity, or is that quite a difficult thing for you? Do you constantly need to have new things even if the old thing still works? Are you able to enjoy things that you don't own? Or do you try and own everything that you want to use? How quickly do you use credits? By which I mean money that you don't yet have. Is it something that you use as a last resort for special purposes only, or, or do you maybe use credit a little bit quickly? Just some questions to allow God into your heart. Because if you see anything of that in you, and if God begins to show you something there, the second R is what we call repentance. Right, when we begin to recognize, actually, there's a sin thing that's going on here that I need to deal with. Repentance is about turning away from that sin thing and realigning ourselves, that's the third R, towards God and His truth. Right? And so I want to invite you to do that as you go home is to, to turn away from those things, to repent of them, to turn towards God and His truth. And I want to share with you the alternative path, the, the truth that God gives us to live by. Just three scriptures to help illustrate that. 1 Timothy 6, 12, 10 to 12, we read the first part of this earlier. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It's through the, this craving that many have wandered away from their faith, pierced themselves with many griefs. But here's the reorientation. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Matthew 6.33 Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Everything that you need will be given to you. All the things in this context that you've been worrying about, what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear. Seek first the kingdom, and God will give you what you need. Hebrews 5, Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. Again, we read this earlier. Keep your life free from the love of money and learn to be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Once you've repented and realigned, the fourth R process that we do in living free is called rebuke. 
Because we recognize there's a battle for our hearts. There's a battle between the spirit of greed and the love of money and Jesus. And when you repent and turn away from that and you turn towards Jesus, you stand in the authority of Christ and you're able to take authority over the spirit of the enemy that would seek to pull you into his trap. And so we take authority over him and you can say, I now command you, spirit of the love of money, spirit of greed, to be bound up and to be gone from my life. And I command you to go to the feet of Jesus because you stand under his authority and in his grace. And then finally, the fifth R in the process is what we call replacing. And it's about feeding ourselves with truth. It's about taking every thought captive and making it obedient to Christ as we live out our lives, as we go through and as this stuff looks to come in and draw us back into this place where our heart gets turned towards loving money. We need to take those thoughts captive. We need to make them obedient to Jesus. We need to constantly feed ourselves truth so that we're able to be conformed into the image of God and walk in the contentment that Jesus has won for us. So I want to invite you to do that as you go home. And I'm going to close with with one last word. It's kind of an axiom that I've developed for myself because as I was reading in James, James speaks about someone who looks into the perfect law and then doesn't do it. He says that man is like a man that looks at his reflection in a mirror and then immediately walks away and forgets what he looked like. And, And it's my concern in our churches that sometimes we are very good at hearing the word of God and not as good at doing it. Casting crowns, sing a song called Between the Altar and the Door. But how easily we get moved at the altar and then we walk out the door and we carry on. So I've developed this axiom which says, if God, then what? If God has said something, if this is what God has said which is true, what am I going to do about it? And I've begun to formulate these statements called I will. I will now do this because I've seen what God has said. So I want to invite you, I'm, going to, I'm just going to give you about two minutes just to be quiet. Just to allow God to speak, to reflect. And if you felt God speak to you this morning, what are you going to do? I want to invite you to just contemplate that before God, to respond in faith.
Thank you for your promise, God, that you will never leave us nor forsake us. You are our helper. And no matter what we go through, you are with us. We bless you for that, God. Thank you that you are a faithful God. Thank you for your goodness towards us, poured out over and over again. And Lord, we want to walk in contentment with you. We want our lives, God, to be orientated not around ourselves, but around you and your kingdom and your glory. And so, Lord, we invite you to help us in this thing. To help us to see, God, where we have invited the spirit of this world to gain a foothold in our hearts, to direct our decision-making. Lord God, teach us, teach us to submit to you. Help us, God. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that you lead us into righteousness. We bless you for that, God. And we just, Lord, we we want to walk in the contentment that you have for us. We want to learn to be content with the stuff that we have. And we want to live our lives, God, for your kingdom and for your glory. We want our cash and our finances to be used for your kingdom and for your glory. And so, Holy Spirit, we invite you into our hearts to lead us, God to do that. Thank you, God.